Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. G'day space junkies and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Annie Hanmar, and today is going to be the last episode for a little while because I'm currently smashing out the writing phase and in the final throes of my PhD. But I've got lots of awesome stuff planned for after my thesis is done, so please don't go anywhere, remain subscribed, things will turn up eventually. While you're waiting for new episodes, you can check out a bunch of video episodes on my YouTube channel. Just head to YouTube and search up the Space Junk Pod and you'll find the same logo. If you're in Australia or New Zealand, A big shout out to the ASTRA program, which is being run by the Australian Youth Aerospace Association. Applications close on the 29th of November. So check my Twitter for more information or go to astra.ayaa.com.au. And if you're interested in anything to do with space law, space governance, space tech, space industry, um, and you're a current uni student or young professional, get involved. Okay, onto the podcast. Today's guest is Adine Denton. Adine is a geologist and planetary scientist who works on surface processes on terrestrial bodies. Her current projects focus on massive impact basins on Pluto, Martian subsurface drainage networks, and tectonic activity on icy satellites. Adine is trained as a scientist, historian, and dancer. And she's also the co-director of the Ethics and Human Rights in Space project group for the Space Generation Advisory Council, which is how we met, because I am on this project group. We had an amazing chat about all things science, society, ethics, and dancing, and I hope you enjoy it. G'day, space junkies. Welcome back to the Space Junk Podcast. I am your host, Annie Hanmar. Still not done with a PhD, but my goodness, we are getting there. And today's guest is Adine Denton, who is a scientist and historian. And Adine is a PhD student at Purdue University doing planetary geology. Adine, how are you? Who are you? Welcome to the podcast. Hello, I'm so excited to be here. It's a lovely 8 p.m. in Indiana in the US. Quite quite nice weather, actually. Who am I? Um, I am currently a fifth year PhD student at Purdue, but I have a you know, a melange of a background. I was trained as a, a science scientist and a historian, and um, I've spent quite a bit of time as a semi-professional dancer and choreographer as like a little bit of a side gig. And I think all of that has really informed 
my scientific work, which is my main job during my PhD. So I, I'm a planetary scientist by training. I guess the subfield would be impact physics and, and like an impact physicist, but that sounds like a very smart thing that a very smart person does. Um, the real answer is that I spend my day job blowing up Pluto on the computer. Fabulous. For science. Let's, let's talk about that now from the get go. <laughs> Adine, you can relax because this podcast is not educational. And so, in fact, I call it relentlessly intellectual. So don't feel like you have to, you know, apologize for the work you do. Um, if anyone's listening to this podcast, they've made it this far through the series. They know by now that we don't go easy. Like by the end of this, they'll be like, Ooh. so um, let's start with impact physics. Impact physics sounds like an amazing thing. And blowing up Pluto also sounds good. Tell me more about what you're doing to Pluto. Blowing up Pluto is very good, in my opinion. How so, do you blow it up? Oh boy, I use Fortran. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, you think Fortran is something that's passe and that everybody uses Python now? I'm afraid not. The backbone of most planetary science codes is still written in uh, Fortran 90. Is that just beautiful? Is that just a hangover from existing equipment you've got or is that because no one's been bothered to update it or is it? Um, well, <laughs> there's two answers. The first is that Fortran actually remains an incredibly fast code. So it's actually quite good at what it does. That's why it's still in use, but also it's incredibly difficult to get funded to say, I've, we have this code and it works and we'd like to update it in a new language. That's very hard to convince NASA to do. They're like, uh, really, you would like to do that? Okay. It's much easier to say, I would like to blow up Pluto, please. Can I have some money? <laughs> and they will say, yes, that sounds cool as well. It did take me two tries to get them to say yes. But, you know, they did say yes. They said yes. And getting back to the Pluto blowing up bit, why are we blowing up Pluto? Apart from <laughs> it sounding like a fun thing. Why not? Yeah, so and impact physics as a field is just a bunch of people saying, all right, why don't I blow that up? But um, yeah, so I simulate planetary scale impacts. So, you know, something that's the size of a small moon hitting a planet, that kind of thing. The thing that you can't do in a lab. So you have to use a computer code to do it. And back in 2015, when New Horizons did the flyby, it was wonderful. Pluto turned out to be so photogenic, which was very fortunate for everyone involved. Um, we saw that Pluto had that beautiful little heart on it. The one that captivated everyone, the one that's on all like the t-shirts, all the cool, cute cartoon art. Um, I study that heart. Cool. So it's, we generally think that that heart is an impact basin. The reasons for that are um, complicated and also like geologically, um, you know, they could all be explained other ways, but taken together, it's probably an impact basin. The main reason is that it's a giant hole in the ground. And you don't tend to have generally random giant holes in the ground. Mm. Therefore, it's an impact basin. <laughs> so that you then yeah. try to back solve to figure out what might have sol like what might have caused that, or yeah, well, with giant with really big impact basins like that, where um, you know they're twelve, they're like. Sputnik Planitia, Pluto's heart, is about 15% of the planet by surface area. It's absolutely massive. And when impact basins are that big, their size, their morphology, like how big it is, it's 
how deep it is and its general shape is actually controlled by the thermal structure and the mechanical structure of its interior. So mm. uh, by simulating that impact, i.e. blowing up Pluto, because I end up throwing basically a projectile into Pluto that's about the size of one of Saturn's like smaller moons into Pluto to make that basin, I can test things like what's the thermal structure of the ice shell? Do you need an ocean beneath Pluto's ice shell in order to make the basin look the way it does? And if you do, how big does it need to be? Because things like that are primary controls on the kind of basin that you get in the end. So it's it's a it's a very, very crude form of seismology, actually. <laughs> yeah. Very destructive, but not actually, because I've done it countless times. Do you ever feel tempted to just program random things to hit Pluto? I, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole on YouTube recently, just to explain this. And there's this thing where you can like program giant battles um, between like, so in a video game, you can line up basically whatever you want versus whatever you want and as many of them as you want. So if you've ever wanted to know what would win, like 10,000 chickens or 1,000 uh, T-Rexes, you can run that battle and it'll simulate for you who wins. It's incredible. And then there's another one called Nuke Map, which um, is where you can take all of the known bombs that exist and have existed and you can see what would happen if you dropped them anywhere in the world and it'll give you like, you know, the inner section where everything's dead, the outer section where most things are dead, et cetera, et cetera, and give you statistics and so on. I mean, it's, it's very disturbing. Um, and I want to say right here, I, I don't endorse nuking things, but it occurred to me that if you've got the facilities to create an impact crater on Pluto by, you know, having something land on it. I mean, what if you had something really cool land on it, like like 3,000 T-Rexes? What would happen? Wow, I wonder <laughs> if that's the source of the three bears and 10,000 rats thing that I see on the internet all the time. Yes, um, yes. Wonderful. Yes. Mm. I love it. Uh, my code, <laughs> please, we are simple impact physicists. We can only put spheres into spheres. Oh. oh, okay. I wish that I could do that. <laughs> this is the no. chicken in a vacuum problem. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, the, the code is complicated because the physics of impacts is actually quite complicated just because everything happens so fast and because like you're vaporizing material, you're melting material, you're hyper-compressing material. Uh, the rock is going to immediately start acting like a liquid, but mm -hmm. not completely. So, um, and also there's just the fact that generally speaking, most of the things that hit a planet are going to be, be like reasonably approximated with a sphere. So I can't make anything like fun hit Pluto, but I can mess with quite a bit of other things that make it fun enough for me, a Pluto nerd, to investigate Pluto nonetheless. If I could land 3,000 T-Rexes, I absolutely would though. Yeah, I mean, who wouldn't? <laughs> to my mind, it's really the dinosaurs getting their own back in a, in a weird way for, uh, for what happened to them. So. Oh, God, if they, could, if they could adapt to the surface temperatures of Pluto, I would be absolutely thrilled for them. It's a bit cold. I don't know what it is in Celsius because I can't do mental math. 
Okay. But 44 Kelvin. So. All right. 44 Kelvin. Um, yeah, I also don't know how to translate to Celsius because I grew up with it. So whoever knows, you, please, uh, please leave a comment. You simply add 273, but can I do mental math whilst being recorded? I cannot. No, who can? So I, I leave that as an exercise to the listener. Absolutely. At any rate, it's 44 degrees above absolute zero. So it is um, extremely cold, as yeah. we say. <laughs> Which is why there's all the hype about, does Pluto have a subsurface ocean? How could it possibly have a subsurface ocean? It's 3 billion miles away. Oh. Um, Do you think and yet it, does? it probably does. Yeah, yeah. So in order to get the heart to look the way it does, you actually have to have a subsurface ocean, really. Um, because you need like a, the addition of a subsurface ocean beneath the eye shell completely changes the resulting basin that you get. And so, yeah, all my work suggests that you need an ocean and like quite a thick one as well. And some other work that I've done basically using the entirety of Pluto, some work came out recently saying, all right, we, when New Horizons did the flyby, we got like really good data of one side of Pluto and really shit data of the other side, but we, we got it, you know, it's like, mm. you know, grainy iPhone footage type situation. They saw some like really weird stuff going on at the opposite end from Pluto and said, wait, you know, sorry, from Spunic Planitia, so all right. Directly opposite the massive impact basin, you know, is there a connection? And probably that's actually, that's actually something that happens quite a bit. Um, just because like, if you assume the planet is spherical, you, you know, you hit it, the seismic waves expand and get focused by the planetary geometry to the other side. Mm. And if you like assume that's going on, you can test not just whether there's an ocean, but the composition of the core itself. So I've done yeah. that and, and found that like, you might have had substantial hydrothermal activity and an ocean, which is like, oh, the Kuiper belt, it's so far away. And yet, and yet, you know, well, but it's also not impossible if you have a thick enough surface, right? I did, uh, for context, my pre-space PhD work was on Antarctic subglacial lakes um, and studying the scientists who studied those from the Soviet Union and America and France. They all got wildly drunk together in Antarctica and burned <laughs> down their station more than once. But they and had a great gross. time. And they did some amazing work. So the main graph that we have um, showing carbon levels over time comes from the ice core at Lake Vostok, which, um, you know, since then we've got better ice cores and we can do it much quicker now than they used to, they used to do it by hand. Oh, Sad. but anyway, four Ks below the surface. And I don't know what that is in miles, um, but four kilometers below the surface, there's a subglacial lake. And there was a similar thing where people were like, is there a lake? Is there not a lake? It kind of looks like there should be a lake, but that's weird because it's four kilometers <laughs> under the surface. Can that even be a thing? And essentially like the weight of the glacier, the weight of the ice keeps the ice at the bottom constantly melted. And that's one reason, you know, even aside from any geothermal activity that you can have a lake under ice, although it would be fairly thin if that's the case. Anyway, I don't know. Is this a thing that could happen on Pluto? Like if you had enough sort of, weight bearing down on an area could you have a subglacial lake there if not an ocean um Adine's like so, how do i say no in a nice way no no I'm, i want to be able to explain why it's a bit different right it's just the scale is a bit different thinking mm. about it on planetary scale so the ice i'm talking like 
even with a thick ocean, so like 150K ocean, the ice shell above it is still 178 kilometers thick. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so um, if you had like a really, really thick ice shell, you actually, yeah, so ice is cool in that unlike rock, uh, you add pressure and it melts easier. But the problem is with that much pressure, you don't end up with water, you end up with ice too. So the higher yeah. pressure version of ice, which is not what you want. <laughs> not very ocean-like. <laughs> yeah, fortunately, yeah. Uh, it doesn't look like we've got ice too. So we've probably got water. Okay, so that but means the, you probably need some geothermal stuff going on. Eh, Maybe? Not necessarily. Like, geothermal stuff may or may not have happened. But if you get an ocean and the ice shell is um, relatively stiff, so conducts heat pretty slowly, then you can keep it. Mm. Yeah, that's like the short answer. Fair People enough. do not agree on how that might work, but if you have an ocean, you it is possible for Pluto to hang on to it. You know what else people don't agree on, Adine? Yeah? Is Pluto a planet? <laughs> Did um, you like my segue? I think it's a good segue. Uh, so... I am a co-author with one of the chief proponents of Pluto being a planet because he's the PI of New Horizons and feels very strongly that Pluto is a planet. Um, I have some thoughts on this and that may not be as controversial, I guess, as anyone else, which is, I honestly don't care. Um, I think that Pluto is like, it's just semantics, right? It's all, it's all just, okay, if Pluto's a planet, then so many other things in the Kuiper Belt have to be planets, and then we have too many planets, and the kids can't learn them, and that's sad. Um, that is one way to look at it, but I think within, like, planetary science and the people who do geology within that ascribe to the, pl the planetary, the geophysical definition is, I think, what people call it, the geophysical definition of a planet, which is, has it got a solid surface that I can study? great it's a planet which right. opens things up quite a bit because you've got like then then moons are planets because i think so there's a subset of the community that's like oh is saturn's moon titan a planet well i mean there's a lot to unpack there yeah but i think pluto, pluto has a lot of um i don't know if the right word is spiritual significance for a lot of people myself included obviously to where I guess it's always a planet in my heart, but in terms of like the wording, it's fine. Having it be a Kuiper Belt dwarf planet because it makes things easier to organize our solar system is fine. We make all of these definitions up anyway. Yeah, that's So absolutely. it's okay. <laughs> yeah, it's really funny because, um, okay, so as someone who studies like the sociology and history of philosophy of science, to me, the, the fascination with this question is not the answer, but the way in which people try to get there and the arguments that are brought in on both sides. I mean, the argument about, oh, how will the poor children in schools with their textbooks cope is just, it's just amazing. It's amazing to me that that's a reason for assigning a, a fact to something. Um, I use the scare quotes when I said fact. If you're listening, mm -hmm. you won't have seen that, but you could probably hear it. But <laughs> Uh, scare quotes as in like um 
let's not get into Latour, but let's say that when we talk about facts, generally they're decided on, right? What's in your textbook is decided on by a bunch of people who decide this is the scientific fact that we will now put in the textbook. And it's, you remove the, the person who, you know, necessarily came up with the theory, you remove all sorts of things, and it's presented as this passive voice, active voice. The moon is, you know, Pluto is, Mars mm -hmm. is, blah, blah, blah. And then that's what you learn. And so the idea that because it would be very hard for students to take in a fact that might be a little bit complicated or might have some like arguments around it still that will just change that is, um, is just amazing and so interesting. You're making faces. Go on. No, no, it's just very, well, first of all, you know, Latour. Uh, but also I think now that, now that I am a scientist, uh, and, and therefore theoretically in the business of creating facts because like so we're out here trying to find truths about nature, about ourselves. That's why we do science. Um, it is amazing to realize how things are construct, uh, you know, blah, 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 social construction of science, etc. It's just, it gets very interesting to me to think about mm. uh, the massive amounts of nuance com compared with, you know, what I learned as a kid, the moon is. Yeah, yeah. Does it threaten you? Like, you said that now that you're in the business of being a scientist. Oh, I don't think it bothers. It doesn't really bother me, but I think that's because I already had my crisis and I already started thinking about, well, like, I mean, we talked about this offline, but I think the the problem there, right, is the idea that scientists portray themselves as objective and as being somehow like uh, separate from society in that we are we are observing fundamental truths about the universe. We are uncovering nature's laws, um, which you. <laughs> Uh, I, I can't get through it without laughing, but like at, at its heart, a lot of scientists believe that we are objective, that we are able to set ourselves apart from society and do this pure search for truth when I think anyone who's done some sociological training um, can see that, quote, we live in a society, unquote, and that affects the way that we do science, the things we study, how I'm funded, why I'm funded to do what I'm doing, everything that I do is rooted in like socio-political history and causes. Mm. And that's why like, I, it can be, I think very hard to reckon with realizing that I think there's the, like the myth about scientists is that we are uncovering natural laws of the universe. Um, the truth is somewhere closer to, we are trying to organize things that we observe in ways that we can understand. Um, which is very different from uncovering truths that have been laid out for us. Mm. And in particular, as someone who does numerical modeling, I blow up Pluto. I don't even blow up the real thing because that would never happen. And I would never do it. I would never do that to Pluto, me, no. But you know, thousands of fake Plutos, absolutely. <laughs> but right, I'm a numerical modeler. I can't do the real thing. I'm doing a simplified version of the real thing and extrapolating, you know, by leaps and bounds thinking, okay, if this is true and if this is true, then maybe, just maybe Pluto and Kuiper Belt objects like it have oceans and could be habitable. And it's not a truth, it's a possibility. 
And I think <laughs> the, I'm okay with that. I'm happy in doing the kind of science where I'm uncovering possibilities rather than truths. But um, that could be a hard pill to swallow. I, I think it's really interesting. So I teach at Sydney University a course called Science, Ethics and Society, which I think I've talked about before on this podcast because it's kind of my favorite subject in the world. And we encounter a lot of students coming in through undergraduate who've been trained in this idea of science. They've like read about it in their textbooks. They've been sold this view of it, that it is that like we're uncovering truths and we're like nature's detectives and um, or, or even that there's some sort of moral element to what they're doing that's like we're, we're morally better or we're morally good and so on. Anyway, we take them through a semester where we point out all of the times that hasn't been the case and continues to not be the case. Um, and we talk about, what do we talk about? We talk about Nazi science. We talk about like the way that Western knowledge systems sort of oust other knowledge systems in ways that are destructive. Um, we talk about a whole bunch of stuff and Cumbrian sheep farmers and Pasteur and all sorts. It's really good fun. Uh, but yeah, and the link with journalism and so on. But it is so interesting to me that a lot of the way that science was portrayed to me as a kid as well was that really like people in lab coats doing serious stuff about the universe and that's that's what science is. Um, you know, and I, I actually think that we do kids a disservice. Like I can understand 50 years ago, totally. Yeah, why not? Sounds good. Tell them this is the thing. Let's go for it. We're in the Cold War. But now, like, it, kids grow up with the internet. They know so much stuff. They're, like, so knowledgeable about facts. So we don't have to sit there and be like, here's more facts that you must learn about the universe. We can sit there and be like, hey, what is a fact? Who decides what's a fact? How does this actually work? I, I think it sounds much more interesting, personally. What do you think? I, I mean, I completely agree with you, but I, th I think we are very similar minds in that regard. Mm. I think it's so important that classes like that exist. I wish there were more of them, honestly, because I think it's really important for scientists to take those kinds of classes and do the kind of self-reflection about like, not just why are you doing science, but like, how, like, wh why are you able to do the science that you do? To me, that's really, really important. I don't know if it's it's probably because I was trained as, as a historian as well. And so I just, I want to understand how my field got to this place. But like, oh. I do impact physics. The field of impact physics exists because of nuclear weapons. And the codes were designed to simulate nuclear explosions. I get to use them to simulate blowing up Pluto. But the reason that the funding existed in the first place is because of the Cold War. And I think that's really important to understand and learn, and particularly because in the codes that I use, you go to your little library of materials that you have and you say, all right, I need to find ice because Pluto is made of ice and rock. Do, 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 do. Boy, there's all these metals in here. Why is there so much metal? Simulations of nuclear weapons, simulations of projectile weapons. We know so much more about metals than we do about rock because of the military industrial complex. Mm. Not to get too intense on the pod, but well, I think that that's super important. <laughs> How do you feel about that? I mean, it's our legacy, mm -hmm. right? And 
I feel a very complicated way about, about it that it's very difficult to articulate, but I think it's very important to uh, look at the field, look at where I am, look at how I got here and really see it for what it is. Mm. Um, and that's just very important to me to present a view of the history of planetary science and a history of impact physics that really describes why we can do it. Because I think that's, that's important, not just because uh, the Cold War was a thing that happened and we got impact codes out of it, but because it's, um, that never really stopped, right? I can, that is a job that I could do is they still use these codes. People like me can go disappear into a national lab and do that kind of work. And you need to be able to understand the history and the legacy of that work in order to make a decision about whether or not you're willing to continue to do that. Hmm. Science never really, like, I, I feel like a lot of people say, oh, uh, the Cold War was both a golden age for science and a cold, golden age of, you know, <laughs> academics colluding with the military industrial complex to get massive amounts of funding. And both of those things can be true. But they never really ended, right? Um, mm. The military planned moon bases in the late 1950s, early 1960s, it's still planning that today. Things, <laughs> things don't change as quick as we'd like to. And I think as scientists, it's your duty to say, how do I fit into that? How can I consciously choose a path for myself amidst all this other stuff. And that means you need to have a clear idea of what all the other stuff is. That's my opinion, yeah. though. No, I think that's, that makes perfect sense. And I wonder um, whether the fact that you work as a dancer and a choreographer actually influences that self-reflection because um, I'm myself not a very good dancer, although I love it to bits, but um, I do, a bunch of like music and other performance stuff. And there's an element of it where you're doing a thing, but you have to know how that looks and is perceived by others. And you're kind of trying to shape what you do to try and evoke something in the people watching. That's the nature of a performance. Much as I love putting on performances myself with, you know, a bit of music on, uh, <laughs> there's, there's an element to which you accept that you're observed. And I think, when we go into a workplace, we tend to forget that we're being observed by others as much. It's less performative because we're doing work and we're producing an output and that's what our job is. So the ability to take a step back and look at what you're doing within the context of everything else, if you like, you're sort of um, looking at the choreography of your work and the choreography of your, your um, existence within a broader context of things moving and changing constantly but in a particular way uh, I think that's actually quite unusual well first of all thank you for that incredible connection I think that's that's like that is very cool and I am not the dance scholar that that does this but I know several dance scholars that really do think about like the movement of people under the current surveillance state as a form of choreography between the nation state and its people which is super cool. I obviously don't do this. I'm simply one dancer and one choreographer. 
But yeah, I do think it choreography and dancing, it makes you see patterns in things, right? I, I, music is, I think, very similar. I also play the piano, though, in an extremely mediocre fashion. That's the um, best way, I think. Like, with yes. most things, doing something in a very mediocre way is a lot of fun. <laughs> once you get uh, good, you have to practice so much to maintain that level. Yeah. Oh, I completely agree. But I think, it, like, with music and with dance, it's a bit similar in that anytime you play something or anytime you perform a dance, it's never going to be the same. It lives and then it dies, kind of like a mayfly type of art form, which is, I think, really interesting and makes it very, very different from visual art. In like, it, I think it makes us a lot more cognizant of how we appear because this is it. The dance is now, it doesn't continue. It exists as long as the dancer is moving and then it's gone. And like, I think it's very profound, but it can also be very frustrating to, to try to make dance with that in mind. <laughs> Especially now when we have to think about, dance is like a very spatial art form, which is what you said, right? It gets into this idea of where am I in space? How does my body interact with space physically? And how can I communicate concepts physically? Now in the age of this uncertain time and COVID-19, thinking about making dances on the screen for people, when you lose that sense of depth and your relationship to your space and someone else's space, it's, it's been very weird. But yeah, I do think in general, it gives me like a very weird physical sense of geologic processes and yeah, how humans move. That concept of something being in the moment you watch a performance, it's there and then it's done. It isn't there anymore. The video, you can have a video, but it doesn't capture the feeling of the thing. Uh, it, I mean, to my mind, that just feels like life, right? Life is totally. so insanely short in, in comparison to just about everything else. But even if you look, especially if you're looking on a geological timeline, the, the way that we live our lives, I think, um, like it, it matters because, because it is so short in a way. So you only have this like brief moment to do something and then that's it. And I, I wonder like, this is okay. This is getting really deep, but I'm a philosopher and you're here. So <laughs> you're a historian and I know for a fact that you've read a lot of stuff on all of this and you think about it deeply. So I'm, I'm torturing you because we can but um <laughs> feel free to torture me back but i yeah let's let's talk about like the brevity of existence and Oof. the futility <laughs> of life i mean uh, does that play into the way that you also view your choreography of your career and your work um or do you think that sometimes you you've got to avoid that uh, where do you sit where do you sit on nihilism? Is I guess what I'm asking. I can't live a nihilistic lifestyle. I get, I tire of it and it tires of me and I simply cannot do it because mm. I guess, I don't, I will be interested in your take on this as well. Grad school in the US is very long and um, it does not have to be terrible, but it's often terrible. And it, I guess it's kind of like running a marathon. You hit a series of really low points, but I can't live in that low place. 
I can't do that. I have to choose to exit that place and find something else because I just, I simply cannot live in a way where uh, the things I do don't have meaning. And sometimes I think like as scientists or as graduate students, everything's quite tedious. You're doing the same thing. I don't know. I was debugging the same section of code for four weeks. It was devastating. I would, you know, talk to someone in the hallway and they'd be like, oh, you figured it out. No, I, I'm disappointing both myself and you right now. I have not figured it out. Um, dance is for me uh, a completely different way to look at the world. It does help me regain a sense of purpose because when I dance, um, and I think this is true, like regardless of dancing skill level, honestly, but you have to be present in your body and present in the space. If I am not, it does not work. Um, but making dance and feeling physically connected to my body is a, just kind of a way of reminding myself that I am alive. I'm not just, I do not exist to be a brain connected to two hands that type things on the keyboard and Google my problems. I can make something and I can make something that resonates with people and like is very physical and can, I think dance is a very funny way to capture aspects of life because, because of like what you said, how similar it is to the act of life itself. You're going to watch a dance and it's going to end and it's going to reach such highs and such lows because of the very fact that it is finite. And I think that's really, really cool. And it's fun for me to, explore in that way. And I like to, lately I'm messing a little bit closer to like the, the science space and that I'm trying to figure out how to represent geologic concepts physically. Um, but I never want to try to like translate my PhD into dance. Um, I like dance to be a separate thing that I do to regain my humanity when grad school does drive us into like a nihilistic place. Yeah, I don't know if that answers your question but I'm interested in your take on that too. I, I think that was far more interesting than I could have possibly hoped. Um, yeah, I, I think my experience of doing a PhD has maybe been a little bit different because Australia's system is a bit shorter, so we don't do the coursework elements. Um, yeah, I'm it's so more like the British you. system. You just write a PhD and that's that. But I'm at an interesting point where I kind of want to finish and move on with life. But I also really appreciate the privilege of being a PhD student um, from, from a, you know, like a hundred meters up looking down. I'm like, oh yeah, it's good. Ooh, because yeah, yeah. <laughs> because like you're, you don't have to, as you say, just be hands attached to a keyboard with a brain. You're actually taking a step back and looking at something in a different way and trying to contribute something to something about knowledge. Like I always say, I want to write important things about stuff. And that's, that's kind of, for me, I guess, um, a very rewarding thing when I think in terms of the brevity of my existence. And um, I, I would say I, I'm probably more comfortable with nihilism, but you know, I did work in investment banking and I think that really does hammer that home for you. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, looking at, at how short life is, it's, it's a privilege and 
a good thing to be able to step back and do that and not just be going through the motions of living, you know, engaging in that choreography with the, the surveillance state or, um, or, or the non-surveillance state, let's like, whatever the case is, but we do, we do live by choreography. I mean, you get up in the morning, you like make a cup of tea, you, there's rituals we do and we have ritualized responses to things when people say, how are you doing? You're like, oh, I'm all right. Um, or in Australia, we say, how are you going? Which apparently is very confusing to Americans. They're like, what mode of transport? But for us, it's just like, how are you going, mate? It's like, yeah, how are you doing? Anyway, we, we have these responses that are almost programmed into us. And the more we repeat them, the more programmed they become. And the more we live by habit and we don't actually get to stop and think about it. So I think it's really nice that in my 20s, I get this moment of reflection and thinking about the way that we operate as a society with science that, um, yeah, that I probably wouldn't get otherwise. And for a second, get to study our choreography and say, hmm, that's interesting, before I go back to doing it for the rest of my life, which will inevitably <laughs> happen. No, I, yeah. I, that's such a good outlook to have. I mean, really, I think, I think for some people, for a lot of scientists who've bought into the myth of like science as truth uncovering as, you know, like we are our own little miniature gods seeing the world in our own specific ways realizing that science is socially constructed and that we're doing this as part of a society can be really disappointing but i actually find it kind of invigorating to know and understand that and to like to watch my own little choreographed movement in a larger system and to be aware of my sphere of movement and where the edges are because only when you really know where the edges are, can you actually start to push on them. So I, it's, you, I think a lot of people could descend into nihilism when thinking about, oh, does my science have any meaning if I'm not finding the truth? But I think it has even more value when we think about uh, why we as a society do science and how I can meaningfully do that for myself and for society. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, sounds very granola. Good reacts only. Um, Adine, <laughs> I'm going to pull us out of this philosophical space to the more practical realm and say, so, deep. so, so Adine and I are on the Space Generation Advisory Council Ethics and Human Rights Project Group, which is a mouthful. And Adine's actually the co-lead and I am a mere um, cog in that great machine. But I wanted to say, Adine, what is next? Like you're clearly bridging these worlds of which of course are socially constructed as being separate uh, of science. And yes, I really need a t-shirt that says it's a social construction like <laughs> everything else. That's it's a false dichotomy. We don't yeah. need this. <laughs> we'll have to get some space junk merch happening with that. But, but in the meantime, um, what's happening for you? Like where, what are you looking out? What's happening in your practical world over the next, I don't know, weeks, months, year that you're looking forward to and, um, yeah, and that you're working on? So, okay, I think that is a tough question to ask in scare quotes, these uncertain times. Unprecedented, that's the word um, we've chosen in Australia. Right, right, yeah, these unprecedented times. I think it's a tough question because I, I like many people, have decided, well, I'm simply not going to think about the future. Uh, <laughs> Um, which is very helpful for me these days. 
in terms of what's happening in the next six months, which I think is easier to focus on, um, I think the Ethics and Human Rights Project group that I'm running, that you are an incredible member of, please do not sell yourself short. Uh, the, I think the work that we're doing, trying to make a reading list for people, a more, a more accessible way for people that are interested to get a handle on the complex intersection between uh, human rights, what does human rights mean in the context of space? What does the geopolitical sphere have to do with space exploration and building that reading list for people is something that I, I really think is really important, even, even if it seems like a relatively small thing to do, if we're going to call it a bunch of articles, a bunch of podcasts, whatever, and have them up there for people. But I think small things like that can make a huge difference for people. So I think the continuing to uplift the work that people in the ethics and human rights group of the SJAC are doing is really, really important to me. In terms of my research, I mean, I've actually done blowing up Pluto right now and I'm actually um, cooling and relaxing Pluto. So I'm letting it flow like uh, silly putty right now instead, checking some long-term stuff. That's what I'm doing for my research. But longer term than that, I think I'm still trying to figure out uh, how one, what the intersection of art, science, and humanities means in terms of a career is, I think, a very difficult and very fluid <laughs> question and answer. I'm going to keep making dance for as long as it is possible for me to do so. Right now, it's a bit difficult because I live in an apartment that's entirely carpeted. Um, so it's been difficult, but not impossible. And thinking about what kinds of dance do I want to make right now has actually ended up lately being um, a series of introspective pieces about human space flight and the Apollo program because the anniversary, we're in the middle of the Apollo program anniversary right now. And that feels as an American, like I was very, grew up very steeped in the myth of the Apollo program. As an American growing up in South Texas, uh, near the Johnson Space Center, super, super steeped in it. The license plates had the space shuttle on them. And I, I'm right now interrogating what human exploration means, human space exploration means to me through dance. Mm. And I think that's something I'm continuing right now, like in the, in the comfort of my own home. If people would like to find what you're up to, follow you, look you up, see what you're dancing, where do they go? Um, type Adine Denton into Google. I am the only person with my name, so it is very convenient or very inconvenient because everything I've ever done is on Google. <laughs> my website is adinedenton.com. I am on Twitter as at Space Whale Writer, as in whales, the animal in space and I read them. Uh, I'm on Instagram as a Dean D, but I, I don't do science communication on Instagram. It's purely a personal Instagram. Um, if you want science, if you want dance, you should go to my website. You should go to my Twitter. I have a Medium account where I write things. Yeah. That, that's that on me. That sounds fantastic. I'm sure that many people will want to do that. Um, Adin, this has been great. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Um, I hope that, hope you're feeling all right after what ended up being a very deep discussion. No, no, this was great. Uh, but deep this is good. good. 
Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. And thank you so much for making time to come on the podcast finally and talk about stuff. I'm happy that our time zones aligned. Me too. I wish that I could have come to visit you or you could come <laughs> to Australia. Uh, one day. One day, you've got to make it safe here. to travel. I would love to. Australia has two of the best impact creators in the world. I would love to see them. Really? And it has the Jack Hills. You know, they're literally the oldest rocks in the world. Australia has them. So I would so love cool to go to stuff. Australia. And we never I mean, know about it. I would love to talk to you as a person as well, but Australia has really good rocks. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, look, if you, if you come visit, we'll go look at rocks. I have some favorite rocks that I can show you. So um, we'll do that. I am extremely unironically interested in seeing those rocks. It's been wonderful talking to you as well. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Space Junk. To find out more about Adine, look up her website, adinedenton.com. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram as at Annie Handma, and you can email any questions, comments, or good thesis writing tips to thespacejunkpod at gmail.com.